Thank you, Andrew. I, I do feel like I need to add a couple things just to uh, fill in a few of the details. Uh, I am no longer an elder at White Station, uh, mainly because when I went on sabbatical several years ago for part of a semester, I decided I'd need to resign as an elder because it'd be like a black hole and I really wouldn't get the time off otherwise to do some other things. And then I decided to shift as I was being invited to do so, it wasn't something I marketed, uh, to try to respond to needs of churches. And one way to describe it, I shifted from a local level of ministry to more of a national level of ministry. So last year I, was, I did consulting for 24 churches in nine states and four foreign countries. And that was my side job. I was still dean and, and taught at, at school. And, I, and I'm saying that not to say uh, how many fly, frequent flyer miles I have, it's how much I love the church. There are so many good people. Uh, when we're part of the family of God, we're part of a really good family. Amen. It's not always functional or healthy, but it doesn't intend to be dysfunctional. It just happens a lot of times. And there are those who really uh, want to lead with the best they can. Uh, I've, um, it's become clear to me that everyone is networked in terms of ministering the churches of Christ but our elders. Youth ministers, they're the wealthiest of us. They got a better budget than any of us. Just look at the youth, National Youth Ministry Conference, you don't know that. Uh, campus ministers are very networked, extremely networked. And then you've got preachers are networked, typically depends on where you went to school. A lot of times you're, if you're in those circles where you went to school, you'd have a network, or in your region. And I really applaud this, and I really appreciate the elders here and Andrew uh, doing something like this, because I think it's, it's important for you to have fellowship with each other uh, and also to just continue to seek resources that will help you as you seek to, uh, to serve, because all of us in ministry are going to be where we've never been before on a fairly regular basis. As an elder, I had to address things that I've never had to address before, and I'd rather someone else have to answer this, not me. As a preacher, I really like Cecil's suggestion. Why don't you preach through the un- underlying segments of scripture because we do have our favorites and if you go to the uh, the ones that are not marked or underlined you're now going to go where you've never been before and then you may uh, look for some new resources to say what do I do with this this doesn't even make sense to me how am I going to preach it and then once it makes sense to you how do I preach it like it is as important as it really is <coughs> and develop the passion for that so you know, a lot of that is just uh, I think uh, a matter of just being encouraged and networking, so I, I, I'm honored to be a part of this today. What I'm going to do is share the background of, I have one really good sermon, and I'm, I'm going to share my one really good sermon with you today, and, uh, but I want to give the background of it so you'll know where it's coming from, and then I'll also get to do some things in it I don't normally do in a sermon, because in a sermon, as you well know, you've got 22 and a half minutes. And uh, it's nice to go through it and then sort of expand on it here and there, but I'm using the sort of the shell of that uh, to present that, uh, present this to you today. As Andrew mentioned, I have my, my initial exposure to a different perspective of scripture did come from being, uh, being in the Middle East for nine years. My parents moved from Artesia, New Mexico to Jerusalem, Jordan in 1963. I was 13 and uh, went to uh, high school on the West Bank 
in Ramallah. I was the only American in an Arab boys school, so I understand minority status. I was there for four years. We didn't even have a furlough during those four years. Just, you know, it was immersion. When I came back, I uh, went to Lubbock Christian and on and uh, to Harding School Theology, or Harding and Harding School Theology, and went back to Nazareth, Israel, where we have a church there and we have a Christian high school in El Abun. It's an Arab village about 15 miles west of the Sea of Galilee. 300 students in it, all Palestinian, Arabs. Half of them are from a traditional Christian background, like Greek Catholic, Greek Orthodox. The other half are Muslim. And it's the only place I know of in the anywhere in the Arab world we can teach Bible to Muslims every week. And for five years, I taught 10th, 11th, and 12th grade Bible. Um, one year I teach the 10th, another year 11th, or whatever, I, but I taught on a weekly basis. My coworkers kind of did some of it as well. When I taught the Gospel of John, I was amazed that they didn't get out of John what I got out of John. And that's the beginning of this story. Because when I... As we all were exposed to the Gospel of John, we know of the Gospel of Love, uh, you know, John 3.16 being pretty important text in it, and you can go through it and see all the uses of agape. And, but they didn't read it that way. Whether it was Muslim or Christian, they just somehow it didn't push any of their buttons, and I couldn't figure out why. So the next year I taught it, I did what was uh, Jim mentioned. It's good to listen and start hearing how they see it, how they read it. So we start reading it from Palestinian eyes. And then I thought something much different. And it kind of set me on a, an interesting journey because I, I have a passion for the word, but I also have a passion to try to convince or try to expose Muslims to the gospel. And I know, as you know, we have a long history of failure. Islam probably is one of Christianity's greatest failures. And when you look at that, you're trying to figure out what, what can we do? So I remember Dad, who has 13, had 13 years of experience in the Middle East. He was in Jerusalem seven years, Beirut three, and Amman three. And he kept saying, we got to find a different way. Something's got to be done differently if we're going to reach Muslims. And you could probably say the same thing about our Jewish evangelism isn't really rich. We haven't done very well that. But Islam has been a major challenge to the Christian witness and to the Christian gospel. And history has not served us well on our side uh, at all. Uh, one thing good coming out of ISIS is it takes the crusades off the table. And uh, I didn't realize this until actually 9-11 actually did it. Uh, I was in a group with 10 Americans who are Christian background for the first time met with 10 leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Amman, Jordan. They had a three-day kind of faith-based reconciliation session with the leaders of the, the MB there. This was just on months before Arab Spring started down in Egypt. You know, it was just before that was taking place. And at the end of those three days, one of the leaders who had been kind of the head of the Muslim Brotherhood at that time said that they will never, they can, he himself recognized. So we can never put the cruise, you know, bring the crusades up to you again because of what happened on 9-11. Because they got tired of being accused of 9-11. They had nothing to do with 9-11. And I'm not Catholic and I'm not from Italy, 
But when I moved to Palestine, you know, worked lived with the Palestinians, I was accused of the Crusades by college, you know, high school kids. It's like I created the Crusades, or I was participating. And I, I had no doubt. In fact, I don't like it any more than they did. But the shame of the Crusades worked against us for a long time. Now the shame of 9-11 and ISIS is working against Islam. The, the mainstream Muslims are in for a really interesting ride, I think. I think this, the radicalization of Islam is going to leave a lot of Muslims open to the gospel. But if we don't have a gospel that they understand, then we've got another problem, and that's what led me down this road. When you read the Gospel of John from the eyes of an Arab Palestinian Arab or Christian, you're going to see it different than you read it when you read it as an American. One of the differences is Americans were very individualistic. What glues a marriage together in America? Not just churches, right, but in America. It's love. If love's not there, you can dissolve a marriage. It's called incompatibility. In the Middle East, that is absolutely unheard of. When you marry, you stay married. Otherwise, the family loses its honor. And it's honor that glues relationships together here, not love. And you'll even find it, you'll even find somebody in India that will tell you, you don't marry the girl you love, you learn to love the girl you marry. And most of us know that is a reality. I mean, we eventually have to learn to love. It's, it's not just an emotion. It's not just passion. You know, it, it's, it's an intentional desire to do the best for someone who's very close to you. So if you just approach scriptures from an individualistic or a group-oriented perspective, you're going to see two very different things. We think of the Gospel of John as the Gospel of love. When they read through it, they started highlighting the things that had to do with the the glory and honor of God in the Gospel of John. Well, come to find out, if you do a word count, doxa, and its domain of terms, appears more often in the Gospel of John than Agape does. Which now led me to, oh, okay, where else does this go? Then when I realized that the book that is so important to us for evangelism, the book of Revelation, right? Just seeing who's asleep. Those <laughs> hamburgers may have got a few of you. The book of Acts. Do you know how many times love is mentioned in the book of Acts? Is that odd to you since so many of you have presented the gospel on the basis of the love of God and it's not even mentioned in the most evangelistic book that we have? What's going on here? I mean, something's going on in terms of how we have contextualized the gospel to fit an American audience, but it may not be global, and it may not be at home where it started. So that, that raised a whole lot of questions for me. Because I found out, and, and this, this led to a journey including a PhD dissertation on thematic dissonance in the Muslim-Christian encounter, in that while we have tried to communicate the gospel on the basis of the love of God, is, is on what God does for man is how it's communicated. He died for us. He gave us. He saved us. He redeemed us. I mean, it's, a form of, it's more of an anthropological focus. It's a focus on what God does for man. Whereas 
The whole theological premise of Islam is what man does for God. You honor God. And so we're like ships passing in the night. We're talking about what God gives us, and they're talking about what we do. The word Islam means to submit. You submit to God. I can't take a Muslim to a single service, worship service, to the Church of Christ in Memphis, and they think it's worship. To them, it's a lecture and a concert. Because in Judaism and Islam, worship is prayer. And they spend their time going through a series of rakah, which is a term for each of those cycles of prayer where you stand and kneel and bow and kneel and stand. And you go through these, and there's different numbers of rakah depending on whether it's the noonday prayer or the morning prayer or the evening prayer. <coughs> for us, we kind of book in the worship service with an opening and closing prayer. And if it's on Sunday morning, there's three more that we add. You know what I'm talking about. That's right. So we're not, um, and, and then it, I could talk a lot more on this in terms of implications, but I'm, I'm trying to, I want you to see where I'm coming from as to why I see Exodus as the way I'm going to see it. Because as, as I started working my way back and understanding what is the meaning of, of doxa, which is the Greek word for glory and honor in the New Testament, and ended up back in the Old Testament with the Hebrew word kavod, K-A-B-O-D, but pronounced kavod, you get to Exodus 34, 33 and 34. That's, that's kind of where I've gone. Where I'd like to go with this, not today, but if we were to understand and able to communicate the gospel on the basis of the honor of God, not just the love of God, how would that be heard in the ears of Muslims in the world? And would the gospel actually become good news based on the honor of God? And do we have any footing on that, both biblically, spiritually, and I think evangelistically? So that's what that's what's motivated me to go where I am. If I get all excited about it, it's because it's been a great journey. And you I know you haven't been on that journey because you haven't, and that's why I'm telling the story. I know you haven't been down that road, so I shouldn't expect you to be where I am on that one today because that hasn't been that much of a concern for you. But if I share some of this with you, I think it might give you some new insights that will preach, that really will preach, that I hope will add some breadth and depth to the preaching that you're doing. Because we live in a society that's lost its honor. It's become shameless. And it could be because we've not really preached. We've not lived it. We've not promoted it. We've actually let... And, and you know, there are times when Christ is always going to be in conflict with culture. And I think what we've typically done is let the tension points be some of the obvious things in culture that are sinful, when in fact some of the very premises of our culture need to be challenged as well especially the individualisms. I mean, where it's coming back to bias is um, it's not uncommon today to find with, within, I don't know if to say young adults, but I think it's certainly with them, they'll say yes to Jesus and no to church. And it's kind of a reaction to a generation that have said yes to church, but you wonder if they knew Jesus. And we've got to do both. It's, 
Very difficult to read 1 John and not say yes to Jesus and yes to church. It's difficult to read all the book of Acts and not say yes to Jesus and yes to church. If it's yes to Jesus and no to church, about Acts 3 on, we can rip it out. And you see why some people don't like Paul's letters. They're to churches. <coughs> and it's about the, the nurturing, the strengthening of churches and the faithfulness of churches. In our fellowship, and probably in a lot of churches, not just Church of Christ, we know two words in Hebrew and two words in Greek. The two Hebrew words are shalom, and many figure out that hallelujah is actually a Hebrew word. Right? <laughs> the two Greek words that we know are agape and baptism. That's about it. So I'm going to try to add one of each. And it's the same word. It's just one in Greek and one in Hebrew. And, if, and encourage you to go on this journey to see what the text says in the New Testament about the doxa of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Can I get some water? I'm just getting over a cold. And still got a little scratch. Scratchy throat. I thought I had it up here, but it disappeared. There has been something that's happened in the translation of the Bible that adds another dimension to this whole discussion. We're all reading our Bible in English. It was translated. Whether it's the King James to the the newest translation. There's been a tradition, and it's, it has been a tradition, that has influenced how we read Scripture. Glory. Whether it's kavod or doxa, the Old or New Testament, when the word kavod or doxa comes up, if God is the subject, the translators typically use the word glory. If man comes up, they typically use the word honor. There's only four or five times where doxa or kavod actually is translated honor for God. Like in Malachi, if a father, a son honors his father, where's my honor? You know, that's kavod. And, and there's several of those, but not many. They almost always did that. Bruce Metzger, who was sort of the chief editor for the NRSV, was in Memphis several years ago. And I asked him, I said, what, what did translators have in mind? What principle or what, how did they decide whether to use glory or honor for Dosa or Kavod? And he didn't, I mean, he, he didn't act like that was an odd question. He said, well, we just typically use what's been done before. <laughs> I said, oh, a new RSV, and he chuckled. <laughs> and I think it's because it's become like a sacred cow in the English language that glory became a church divine word and honor became more of a human society word as such. But when I get into this, you're going to see why I really raise a question about that. Kavod is used over 350 times in the Old Testament. And I'd say well over half of those you could actually translate it honor, not glory. Then we got another problem. Glory means absolutely nothing to anybody that sits in your pew. They didn't use it that week for anything. It's just a church word. It might as well be a Greek word. Just use the word kavod because that wouldn't mean anything more than glory would. 
that mean absolutely nothing. And what's interesting is, especially in the more contemporary songs, have even more references to the glory and maybe praise of God. But we, we still don't, I mean, it's great, and I appreciate it, but I don't know that we know how to, how to connect it to life. It's not really connecting for us. I'm not saying you can't go to heaven if you don't know Greek and Hebrew. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying our culture, starting with King James typically using glory, has tended to hide a dimension of the character of God from us just because of our language, because of the English language. And so I'm going to illustrate some of those uh, here this afternoon. All right. At this point, we're going to start with what might have been a sermon for 22 minutes, but I'm going to expand it. <laughs> I'm going to start with these three texts. And by the end of this 30 minutes, you can translate it or interpret it. Another way to say this is, how do you explain the image of God to a fifth grader? Nothing I'm trying to do. First text is, is Colossians 1, 27. Christ is in you, the hope of doxa. Christ is in you, translated, the hope of, do of glory. This is to the church in Colossae. He makes a number of references to uh, doxa there. And this is one of them. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians 3.21, the wonderful prayer. To him be doxa in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. So what is it that's going to be in Jesus and the church for all generations? And then there's one that's really interesting in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where, you know, the, the problem of e uh, eating meat offered to idols, and it was very divisive. Uh, I, I'm assuming, most of you have been around long enough to see a church fight. Have you seen people get mad at a church? I mean, it gets ugly. I mean, and what's, for, for the younger generation... It's over stuff that doesn't seem to be that important. I mean, that's going to be their interpretation. Why are you getting so emotional about something that doesn't seem that important anyway? And that would be my attitude toward meat offered to idols. I mean, what's the big deal? If it's meat, it's meat. And that was kind of Paul's view, right? In the end, he said, you know, I was a Jew of Jews, but now I'm in Christ. And to me, I just give thanks to my food and eat it. But I realize I've got some brothers that are not there yet. And we need to be sensitive to who they are. So he uses as a principle for unity this whole idea of doxa, what he said. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the doxa of God. So if I don't understand doxa, I, am, I have no foundation for unity. Which may explain why we've had so many splits. Explains why we're fractured. Because Doxa doesn't have a high value among us. Our individualism does. And when that individualism does, we fragment. Because we've got to be right in this one thing. I don't know about some of these others, but we're going to be right about that. Before long, there's something among them that's not right, and they split, and boom, 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 here we go. And it could be over me offered to idols, to a thousand things. If I listed one, it may half of you upset. <laughs> but you can fill in the blank, right? So to me, this is a very important principle Paul gives the Corinthians that does apply to us today, depending on whether, I, I mean, I can't apply it if I don't understand what Doxa is. So that's where we're going to launch into. I hope I've created 
How would you interpret these three texts? We're going to come back to it as we go through this. What is the glory of God? So I, uh, I had my graduate assistant one time say, I said, do some research. I mean, how does the American public, what, what do they think of when they think of the glory of God? So he did deep research and he Googled it. <laughs> Number one, the heavens declare the glory of God from the Psalms. And I think for most people in your pew, if you ask them, that might be the first response they get. The heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God is almost always associated at, at the popular level with the physical phenomena related to God. Now, only 10% of the references of kavod in the Old Testament are in the construct kavod Adonai, which is uh, the glory dash the Lord. It's a construct. And in every one of those 35 instances, it does relate to the physical phenomena related to God. Like the pillar of fire that led them at night through the wilderness, or the cloud that led them in daytime, that was called the kavod Adonai. That was the physical presence of the glory of God. The Shekinah that filled the temple, that was the physical presence of the glory of God. So I'm not going to discount that that exists. <laughs> the question that I'm raising is, why then do we use that all the time for any reference to the kavod of God? As if glory only relates to the physical nature of God. Because we have no doubt among us, I think, that honor has to do with character. Right? Honor is related to character. More the nature of God or of man. <coughs> we use glory in the military. We even talk about old glory. So they either, you know, we either think of the heavens declare the glory of God or old glory. Here's the one I think of. And this, I remember this exact picture in Sunday school when I was a kid. It's sort of that picture of heaven with the bright lights and the golden throne of God, and that's God in his glory. And it's, again, it's related to what? Physical phenomena of God. You know, any, any eternity, it's sort of, a, whatever it is, it leaves us wow. We're impressed by God's greatness, his brightness, and so on. Again, Old and New Testament connects the glory of God to brightness, right? The face of Moses, because he was in the presence of God, his face was shining. Jesus on Mount Transfiguration, his, he was shining because of the presence of God, and so were the two who were with him, right? So, it, again, I don't discount that. What I'm going to challenge is that everywhere it appears, it cannot always have to do with physical phenomena and bright light. There's got to be something else related to the very nature of God. Well, let's go to Exodus 33 and 34 and put this uh, in, in some context as I... Run back. Thank I got some in my pocket. Right? I'm afraid I'll spit on somebody on the top. Well, I sit in the back. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just have to not get so excited about it. I'll do okay. Exodus 32 and 33. Part of 34 are considered one very special unit. Uh, if you happen to read 
uh, I don't know if you use the NI, the uh, InterVarsity Dictionary, like IVP Dictionary, the uh, the Old Testament IVP Dictionary of Paul, and IVP Dictionary of the New Testament. You can use those dictionaries. If you look in the IVP InterVarsity Press Dictionary of the Old Testament, there's some very good articles there. Uh, one on honor and glory or honor and shame by De Silva. One on just the one on Exodus by Fretheim. And in that one, he notes that these, these two chapters, particularly uh, 32, 33, are a very unique unit in all of Book of Exodus. Uh, if you look at the NI, if you've ever used the NIV application commentary by INS, I-N-N-S, he makes an interesting argument that in chapter 32 and 33, we see the humanness of God. You know, God is angry with his people. God changes his mind. It's sort of like God is kind of humanized in that. And Moses, Moses convinces him to change his mind and those kind of things. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting because my approach to those two chapters is kind of the reverse. It's I see Moses as a human. To me, it's humanized Moses. Moses is not this great leader when you read chapter 32, 33, although he's now taking, even though he's concerned about Israel, he disassociates himself from Israel. He's in a debate with God in these two chapters. Remember what the debate was over? When God said, your people whom you brought out of Egypt have so quickly turned from him. Moses, well, wait a minute. These are not my people, they're your people. And then look how many times through those two chapters, he has to keep reminding God, they're not my people, they're your people. You almost get the impression that Moses is better than the Israelites. And it wasn't his idea. These are not my ideas. It's your idea. These are your people. What? I mean, I, I'm out of here. And I think it's the weakest moment in the story of Moses. I know striking the rock is the one that we kind of think of the most. But I think this is even bolder than what you find with him striking the rock. Because as you read down through chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp. But his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. So here is Moses speaking to God face to face. And Joshua's here witnessing all this. The very next verse. Moses says to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have I've also found favor, you found favor in my sight. Now that I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. It's like oh, because rest. Yeah, before I get done, can I remind you once again, these are not my people, these are your people? Now, this is Moses who didn't want to talk to anybody. And now he's arguing with God. I mean, I, I can't think about that a minute. I mean, he's taking on God. His first complaint, you didn't send anybody with me. I'm sure God is going, then what's Joshua doing right there? Hello? But you know, when we get upset, our, reason, our, our rational function kind of decreases. We just get emotional to say stuff that's extreme. I'm sure you've never done that. I have at times with my wife, and I regret it. 
You know, don't ever use, don't ever use always or never. They'll nail that one. You know, but when you're upset, you say, well, you never do this. No, no, no. And that's what he said. You haven't sent anybody. First, he sent Aaron. Now he's got Joshua right there next to him. And I'm sure God's going, you're, what am I missing here? But he's gracious. But in the middle of this frustration, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Okay, Moses, calm down. I hear you. For you found favor in my sight. I know you by name. To which Moses said, Now show me your kavod. Now, again, we don't have a recording of this, so I have no idea what the inflection was. I think our tendency is flat earth. So I'll just kind of show me your kavod. If I'm reading the flow of the emotion of these two chapters and the the frustration of Moses, I think he's basically saying, I've had it. Come on out. I want to see who I'm talking to. Show me your kavod. Because the response God gives fits that context. Here's something that we don't understand that the Jews would and the Arabs do today. And we still have an idiom in English that you understand. And it's kind of the leftover of honor in our society. It's called saving face. I've heard people complain. Why don't all the Muslim countries come out publicly against uh, ISIS or whatever? Which they have, but it doesn't. It's more like, why doesn't our news pick out, pick up what they said? But I've seen the same thing in a, in a congregation where an elder's wife is a major problem, and nobody says a word about it to help that elder save face. Or where a preacher has been a problem, and they quietly let him go. So he can kind of save face. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm just saying we have still, we have function there, but we don't do it because we don't know what we're doing. Because we don't understand honor that well. But saving face is very important. Face has to do with honor. So does name. A good name has to do with honor. So if you're going to save face, here's what's going to happen. And you find this in the Psalms, you find it here, you find it other places. If I turn my back on this brother here while he's talking, I have shamed him. I tried that when I was eight with my mother once. <laughs> I didn't like what she was saying. I turned around and walked off, and she got my knee by the ear and says, Young man, don't you ever turn from me when I'm talking to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you. Lord, turn not your face from me. Do you hear the phrases in the Old Testament? It's all the way through it. It has to do with blessing. It has to do with honor. And if God turns his face from you, you're going to be shamed. If he turns his face to you, you're blessed. And it's the same thing for us. If we turn our face and our back to God, we have dishonored God. And what Moses was asking was to see the face of God. Now, this is an interesting request. I'm, now here's Hubbard's opinion. Given the flow of the emotions of these two chapters and Moses' level of frustration, I think he's saying, I am so fed up with talking to a bush and a cloud, come out here and let me see who you are. 
If we're going to keep going, I want to see, you know, show me your face. Show me your kavod. And that's why a lot of times the English readers don't understand it when Jesus, when God brings up face in his response. Because you're going to go, why did he ask to see the kavod of God? And most of the response is, you can't see my face. We don't get it because it doesn't mean anything to us. What does his face have to do with the request? The request was, I want to see who I'm talking to. Now, I realize there's a lot of anthropomorphisms. That we, you know, God has hands, feet, face, so on, but we know he's, that's not what he is. He's a reality, but he's not made in the image of man to have a real face or real hands. He's the creator, as we were reminded very well this morning. And we can't put him in a physical body until it's got with Christ. So what's going on here? Look at God's response, his first response and his second response to this request, show me your kavod. If you underline, and Cecil said in the Bible, here's some four great things to underline in Moses' response, or in God's response. And he said, this is what God said, I will make all my goodness pass in front of you. Underline goodness. I will proclaim before you the name, the Lord, underlying name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, underlying gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, underlying mercy. Goodness, a good name, graciousness and mercy. Are those characteristics of physical phenomena or internal character? I mean, it's character. To me, it's obvious. I mean, what are you missing? He doesn't say... What do you mean? I created the heavens and the earth. You're talking to the creator of the universe. That would be glory. <coughs> or <clears throat> lightning strike all around Moses as soon as he says, show me your kibbutz. I mean, couldn't he have lit the skies up worse than 4th of July if God wanted to and just blinded Moses because he was, you want to see my glory? All right, here it is. Bam! That's not where he went. He didn't go to physical phenomena. He went to character. And that's just part of it. Now you get the anthropomorphism coming back in. He says, I want you to go up on Mount Sinai and my glory will pass in front of you. You'll see my back. He's putting Moses in his place, obviously. Who is Moses to ask to see the face of God? You know when we had the prince and uh, what's her name from England come and visit, everybody had to learn the protocol, British protocol of what you do with the heir to the throne. You don't go up and, and start a conversation. You know, you don't ask to do anything, and you only come their permission when you're asked. What, that was even back in the story of Esther. Remember, Esther could not come before the king unless she was invited to do so. Do you think all? You think anybody? has the right to come before God without being invited or to ask God to come before them? Here Moses is saying, God, you come before me. Let me see your face. Whoa. I understand. It's a possibility that the golden calf could have been like Hathor, which is a, in Egypt, which was a golden calf or calf that had a human face on it. So what's the difference in the Israelites Building that calf to represent Yahweh and putting a face on it, and Moses wanted to put, see the face of God. 
and actually calling God out to come show his face to him. I mean, God proved he was gracious. I would have struck him dead right there. You can't respect me anymore now after all I've done, Moses. That's it. That's, it's not only you, it's a red hair. Boom. God proved he was gracious and patient with Moses. Throw it in there. Now he says, the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former one, ones. <laughs> Here I think there is a sense. I think there's some, a bit of humor in this. But you remember, God cut the stones at first, the first time around. And Moses broke them. When he got angry, he got down and saw what happened. He broke all ten commandments. Well, he broke, broke the tablets, all ten commandments on. So now he says, okay, we're going to do this again, but this time you cut the stone out. And just before Moses rolls his eyes about this, that's what God says. He said, cut, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke. Don't you roll your eyes on me, man. You're the one that broke them. That's why you're going to have to come up here and redo this all over again. Be ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. I've had an opportunity to be on Mount, or the traditional side of Mount Sinai three times. Um, there are three peaks, granite peaks, in the center of the Sinai Peninsula. I realize there's still a lot of debate over where that was because someone forgot to put the bronze plaque there at the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, these, if they hadn't been nomads, they might have built something that could have been excavated. But when they were living in tents, you don't leave much behind that can be found in antiquity. The new movie on the Exodus, it looks like it's, it's assuming it's over in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, I still like the location of, I mean, these, this is a very clear mountain. About 6,000 feet, there's about 200 feet different between the three peaks. I've been up there uh, at, at sunrise twice, noon, and at sunset. First time I went, my, I was 15 with my dad and mom. Uh, when my son was 15, I took him, I don't know what he'll do when his son turns 15. If I'm, oh, if I'm around, I might go with him too. I like sunset the best because at sunset, as the sun goes down, the shadow of the Mount Sinai falls right over that valley where they could have been camped. You know, you just, just picture in your mind, here they are at the foot of the presence. I mean, they knew God. I mean, there was the cloud and fire and, you know, anything that would get physical phenomena, it was there. You couldn't touch the mountain. And it, I mean, that close to the presence of God, and they go fill the cap. It's like, how, how can they do that? And then, you know, I think, you know, we got to be fair to these folks. We kind of know the rest of the story. And, and yet, we can be right in the shadow of the cross and do worse things. And every Sunday when you're serving the Lord's Supper, you're at the very foot of the cross. It's like the shadow of the cross on you. What, what, how do we live? What do we do? Are we really honoring the one who called us out of Egypt, the one who wants to redeem us, the one who made a people of, of his very own, not what we're really doing. Well, it takes about two hours on a camel to get two-thirds of the way up Mount Sinai, and then there's another, the equivalent, and this is a broad term, equivalent of 850 steps to get to the top peak. They're not nice, laid steps. These are just rocks that you step on 
to get up to the top. I mean, it's a challenge. But right there where the camels let you off is kind of a little uh, station. In fact, Bedouins have uh, been there for quite a while. They're like the park rangers from Mount Sinai. Um, if I had been Moses, I'd already been up there five times, and I'm an old man, now I have to bring tablets. I would, when God said, meet me up at the very top, I would have said, hey, I did the last few times. Can we just meet that little landing? <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Moses did exactly what he said. One, I'll add one note. The, the longest continually inhabited monastery is St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the foot of Mount Sinai, on the backside of it. Um, and when Constantine uh, had this built, his engineer did a bad job. He put it right near the slopes, and you could come up on the slopes and shoot down into it, so he had the engineer killed. But uh, <laughs> I'm just talking about a great Christian emperor. Um, he also had, um, he's the one that also built the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in, at least one of the first versions of it. It's been rebuilt many times. But uh, during that period of time, the fourth century, uh, this was the oldest continually inhabited monastery until about three years ago. It is now closed. The Sinai Peninsula is now off limits to anybody. ISIS is getting into the Sinai. It's bizarre what's going on there. And it's, a, it's kind of a battleground now between with the Gaza Strip on one side and Egypt on the other. Egypt's now having to come up with a whole new regiment of army just for the Sinai. So who knows? when somebody will be able to go back again. All of the, the herd of camel that have been developed to take tourists up there have all been, they've all gone now. It will take years to get back what they had. The Bedouins have lost their business. I mean, it's a, it's a tough thing. And some believe the Bedouins that were here were actually earlier descendants of earlier slaves that Herod brought into that region many, many years ago. So it's, that's a side note, but it's now closed. It's important to us because one of the three oldest manuscripts in the Old Testament were found here, this Codex Semiatica. Um, that's now in the London Museum. Uh, all the manuscripts have been taken. They've been recorded, but they've also been taken to, uh, to Egypt. All right. Here's what Moses is told. When God said, my glory will pass in front of you the next morning. You're familiar with this. The Lord, the Lord, let me do the NIV version. I've been reading out of the NRSV. Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, that's chesed, and I say put steadfast love, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Nowhere else in the Old Testament, nowhere. Is there a self-revelation of God equal to this? In fact, there is no revelation of God's nature or character anywhere in the Bible until the coming of Jesus in this text. And it is echoed in, in Numbers and Psalms. and You'll hear pieces of this throughout the Old Testament. 